You're cute. You always get quieter when you get in front of the mic. Well, I'm scared to be too loud. Don't worry about being too loud. You can't. <laughs> I can individually adjust volumes. <laughs> I'll try to be loud. Just be normal. <laughs> I don't know what that is whenever I have a microphone in front of me. <laughs> Welcome back to another episode of Is Fitz Happy? I'm Luke. And I'm Emma. This week we're discussing chapter 11, Shepherd. And not the pie. <laughs> that would be really good right now. A shepherd's pie? Yeah. Mm. It's shepherd's like the perfect day for shepherd's pie. Yeah, true. Rainy, dreary outside. A little bit gray, cooler mm -hmm. than it has been for a while, so. True. <laughs> Soup season is almost upon us. <laughs> The beginning of this chapter talks about Chade. So last chapter we had all of the slander against him as the pocked man and has a bounty out for his head, but Robin Hobb could not stand that slander at all and has to have the intro written by Fitz here that Chade was the uh, the good advisor behind the scenes working for the good of the kingdom and setting the stage for Verity to come back and right. everything. I must say that I underlined most of this section and put a note that says, okay, Jan. <laughs> or is it sure, Jan? The meme of from Brady Bunch. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, Jan. <laughs> so it just... A little bit too nice to Chade, I would think. Um, it's through Fitz's eyes. It pretty, is. Pretty clearly here. Yes. From his tone. It first says that few knew of his services during the years he served King Shrewd, but this did not displease him, for he was not a man who sought glory. Rather, he was devoted to the Farseer reign with a loyalty that surpassed his loyalty to himself or any other consideration most men have. I would believe that's fairly true. Um, at least while he was in the walls. He did not seek glory for himself. He was loyal beyond what most men would seem. He literally waited on what was pretty clear treason from an order from his king. He didn't want to take any of his actions into his own hand for the good of the kingdom. He was loyal to the king and the kingdom itself. Right. Once he came out behind the walls, he likes the spotlight a bit. He uses the glory to pick up women. So <laughs> right. Well, it's we we don't get a full one-on-one -on -one conversation with him, but probably. <laughs> I mean, he's really old and apparently not very attractive. So not that he would be ugly with the farseer line because they're all apparently hot, but like he does have scars that made himself view himself as ugly. Yeah. So but, uh, Fitz views him just the what the half a year later after Chade comes out of hiding as the scars being hidden a lot by like the sun on his face. Right. So. So it's probably not I that bad. Those, I think those fade. Plus, he was very much a partier. That That's true. Almost put Regal to shame. <laughs> He, in Chade's own words. Regal is for sure a Farseer, <laughs> and the proof is in his uncle. So. <laughs> true. But I true. do want to say, I don't think he was loyal to the Farseer line out of the goodness of his heart. I think he was a very vain young man. And when he was 
by his own words, disfigured from the scarring, it made him go into hiding. And I think he was just too scared to leave. And I don't, yeah, I, I agree with that. And I don't think Fitz says it's out of the kindness of his heart or anything like that. It's just, he has loyalty that far surpasses the loyalty that most other men would have. <laughs> right. I don't know. I just think that that tone makes it feel as though he's this like righteous and just person. And I think knowing Chade the way we know him, he's a little less just and righteous. Yeah. He's just a guy trying to do his best. And this is fits after the first trilogy. This is in between. This is before he comes back and talks to Chade man to man and has experience behind him and sees Chade out in the open advising Ketrikin, but also, you know, he thinks he knows what's best for the kingdom because he's been behind it for so long and Fitz helps wrest control from, you know, Chade to Ketrikin in the final trilogy, that sort of thing. Or to Dutiful, I guess. Um, So this is... Chade romanticized because remember Fitz is locked into his you know 19 year old 20 year old self when he gives his memories away pretty much for a lot of things Chade I'm sure matures because he didn't have a ton of bad memories that he probably gave away into the girl and the dragon but it's still kind of locked into that fresh of like Chade helped me grow up. He made me into the man I was. He Adults always know best. Yeah, adults always know the best kind of thing. So that's where this is, a lot of this is coming from in my mind. And he does say that uh, he, he it's obvious a clear bias towards the goodness of Chade or what he is doing, which is, you know, it's true, but right. it's an obvious bias in this writing that's supposed to be historical. <laughs> Because it says, uh, he pursued his vow to see that the crown followed the true line of succession, and for this reason alone, he was sought after as an outlaw. It does relate how he sent missives to each of the dukes, as well as to Prince Regal, and revealed himself after years of silence, declaring himself a loyal follower of King Verity, and vowing he would follow no other until he was shown proof of the king's death. So, uh, this is what we went over last chapter as well, or last episode, I should say. And said that's what uh, Chade was doing. Right. And he set the stage very well for the coming back of Ketrikin. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, Chade is ultimately a good guy because he's fighting for the cause that we all agree with. But he is kind of just regal, but on our side. <laughs> so I think that's I think this like intro and knowing the context that I have really made me think about it like that. Like, whoa, like Regal could have been a good guy too. If we agreed with his, <laughs> I don't know, ideal ideology. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or his methods or his, his I side. Don't, <laughs> I don't even know we would need to agree with his methods because true. I don't really agree with most of Chade's methods, but that's yeah, true. He gets the job done and gets what I want done. So <laughs> And the last part of this intro discusses the uh, good parts about what he set up and how the people kind of reacted to him declaring all of these different things. Uh, He was evading Prince Regal's, you know, capture by many clever artifices and continued to rally the coastal dukes to the belief that their king was not dead and would return to lead them to victory over the red ships. 
bereft of any hope of aid from King, in quotes, Regal, many of the lesser nobles clung to these rumors. Songs began to be sung, and even the common folk spoke with hope that their skilled king would return to save them, with the legendary elderlings riding at his back. So this fully sets the stage for Starling's song later on, that, you know, she comes back as the minstrel, as the witness, and this is the gospel truth that King Verity was riding on the stone dragons when they fought, but like with the promise he had to go back with them to feast with them forever or whatever, you know, Mm -hmm. it sets the stage for the common folk, for the lesser nobles, for everybody, for something to believe in and, you know, accept rather than just like, these are scary monsters that came and all of a sudden this, you know, and Verity's not with them. And all of a sudden our old queen is here, but she's pregnant again, but she was pregnant before. So where's her first kid? And now she has a second kid right. from who, because Verity's not there and maybe he's dead. And who are these dragon things? And <laughs> yeah. So it, yeah. it perfectly like fits in, you know, a puzzle piece, mm-hmm. like, which is kind of what I was getting at last chapter when I said that it was very important for him to be doing this. Right. It's such a small part, too. It's literally like this beginning of this chapter and like the paragraph last chapter. (laughs) All right. And we're jumping into the chapter then. So this picks up right after Fitz is, you know, looking over his flock and everything. Damon has gone to the village to gather other people, and the rest of the caravan is starting to gather together on this outskirt by this old house and the fields. There are puppeteers, there's a minstrel, there's the caravan leader with a couple guards. There's the owners of the bull and the pony from last time. Or it's a horse, not a pony, but... Yeah, so there's there's quite a few people going here, um, gathering up together because it's safe, it's gathering into one caravan with leaders who know the ways to the uh, the oases or the watering holes and also have deals with the nomads whose territory they cross through. Right. And it explains that basically you're taking animals through grazing area that is scarce. And so you have to be on good terms with the nomads because otherwise they might hurt you. Right. Yeah. And they uh, they all gather here and kind of gather up. Fitz is uh, relaying to us the path, the course that they'll take, zigzag through the uh, through the watering places, watering place to watering place, all the way up to Blue Lake. Right. And Madge, the caravan leader, lets everybody know that there will be no funny business. <laughs> and that what she says is law. Yes. She is setting the expectation now. <laughs> he also is told by. Damon. Yes. Thank you. Yes. The guy who hired him. Yes. Um, he's also told by Damon that Crease will be joining them. Yes. And loudmouth argumentative friend. Yes. And Fitz is not looking forward to sharing this long journey with him. <laughs> And he arrives after the talk about no funny business. So we'll have to see if that affects anything. (laughs) (laughs) 
and Fitz finally falls asleep. He doesn't know how long he sleeps, but we get a skill vision slash dream. He came alert to a voice whispering his name. It seemed to come from far away. But as I listened, I was compelled inexorably to it, as if summoned by a charm. Like an errant moth, I became aware of candle flames and was drawn toward them. Four candles burned brightly on a rough wooden table, and their mingling scents sweetened the air. A woman leaned over them, breathing deeply of the rising perfume. Her eyes were closed, her face misted with sweat. Molly. She spoke my name again. Fitz. Fitz. How could you die and leave me like this? It wasn't supposed to be this way. You were supposed to come after me. You were supposed to find me so I could forgive you. You should have lit these candles for me. I wasn't supposed to be alone for this. And she is in labor. She is soaked with sweat in a nightgown. She is alone because we know that Beric is in town from his last skill vision. Right. She also is having contractions pretty close together and they seem very painful. She's not quite screaming, but just about going through this. Yep. Yeah. And Fitz, when he realizes she is pregnant, <laughs> makes the comment, if it were possible to lose consciousness when one is asleep, I think I would have done so. <laughs> and <laughs> we are taken away from Molly's pain for a minute for Fitz to think about how there was never any other man. Yeah, it reorders everything in his mind. Yes, he finally knows that she is pregnant and she was leaving to protect their child. And he does make note that it's very smart of her to have done so. And even if he would have known then, he would not have followed her. Yep. Because things were too dire and he felt too strongly that he needed to stay. Mm -hmm. And... That's kind of sad to think about that Fitz knows that about himself. Although maybe he just likes to think the worst the worst about himself. Possibly, but, but I, don't know. I, I think it's correct, though. He would yeah. make the same choice. He Think of his role models growing up. It True. was Burek and Chade, two people who made ultimate sacrifices for their kingdom over people and relationships. He says, she'd been right to abandon me. It was so like Molly to make the leaving and the facing this alone her own choice. Stupid, but so like her, I wanted to hug her. I wanted to shake her. So even as he's berating himself, he's like, yeah, she it's so like her to make her own choice in this matter instead of, you know, me just telling her no. Right. And then <laughs> choosing right. that. Because that's, that's what we know of Molly is that she is very proactive. She is very confident and secure in herself and her decisions and wants what's best to live comfortably. Right. And that doesn't simply, but comfortably. Right. And that doesn't mean she's not a romantic. Oh, I no, mean, she, she, is, yeah. she did want him to follow her. Yeah. But she didn't she's want also to young. Right. <laughs> right. But I'm saying she wanted, she's comfortable in her decisions and is a strong, powerful woman who does not need no man. Uh, <laughs> but she also, I think, is somebody who is afraid of rejection. And so if she does it first, it doesn't hurt as bad, which is a lie. I think a lot of us all tell ourselves. Right. And so I think she was just trying 
to make the best of a really crappy situation. Yeah. And now he's dead and she'll never know. Mm-hmm. Well, he's not dead, but <laughs> dead for like 30 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I guess essentially not quite 30, but, you know, like 15, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> And all of a sudden, Birik comes in, the door bursts open, and Birik is standing there, and he's just like, oh, it's only me, soaked through, couldn't get you any dried apples, but whatever, you know, I would have been back sooner, but this storm is crazy. Right, totally oblivious. <laughs> well, I mean, he wasn't expecting it, because she says, it's time, it's it's coming now, and he's like, uh, no, <laughs> like, I don't want this to be true, so I will say it, no. We counted. It's like 15 more days at least. The midwife said so. (laughs) Right. Nope. Not my problem. Like, please, (laughs) please, God. No. (laughs) Yeah. No, he is definitely very worried. (laughs) Yeah. And he's like, should I go back to the village to get the midwife? And she's like, no, we don't have time. So he's like, well, okay." (laughs) after he asks that her water breaks. So, Yeah. yeah, yeah, there is literally no time. This baby is coming whether the midwife is there or not, and he better not leave her alone. <laughs> right. He's just kind of stuck, frozen, indecisive at this point, and Molly has to kind of prompt, like, hey, it, it can't be different from a foal or a calf, and there, there's no one else here to help me, and I'm, you know, and then she is starting to collapse from like <laughs> the contractions and the pain and stuff. And Beer's like, okay, of course. Yep. Can't be any different from that. Right. <laughs> we'll just it, get you through this. It says she made a low sound full of fear as well as pain. Her fear broke through to him. He gave his head a tiny quick shake, a man awakening. No, you're right. It can't be that different. Can't be. I've done this hundreds of times. Just the same. I'm sure of it. All right. Now let's see. It's going to be all right. Let me just, uh, <laughs> he's finally coming to his senses. The shock of it all would be really frightening. Oh, and yeah. I mean, there is a difference between animals and humans. Yes. So I'm sure the fear of what if I mess it up? What if it isn't the same? What if yeah. something goes wrong? And I don't know. I think I understand why he's so afraid, but also I wish he would have jumped in and been in charge sooner i guess not in charge that's not really wouldn't have really been his character though either no (laughs) but i wish he would have taken care of her in this moment and she didn't have to ask for help yeah yeah (laughs) so well he he coaxes and helps her through this uh this time and she gives birth to a beautiful child yeah it's a baby girl Mm mm-hmm I also want to mention that Fitz makes note that, number one, Burek asks for consent before touching her to feel her stomach and everything else, which I think is great. And number two, the whole time this birthing process is going on, he's calling her my good girl and you're going to birth a fine child. And it's much like Just what like he... Just like a horse, probably. Yeah, exactly like what straight up like. Fitz knows he would say to a horse and he notes that neither of them probably really made sense of what he was actually saying. It was just the tone in which he was saying it. Yep. Just steady, calm, low, yes. repetitive. And it's a very quick birth. Fitz mentions that he assumed it would be this 
grueling, long, bloody process. And when the baby comes out, she is fairly clean and it really didn't take that long. We don't know how long, but presumably only a few hours Yeah, at most. And the baby is uh, perfectly fine. Doesn't cry, no. but is fine. And healthy. Yep, healthy. They clean up, um, finish the birthing process. Vera cuts the cord, and the baby starts to nurse after a few mistries, and Birik heaves a giant sigh of relief at yes. that point. So Birik was obviously stressed through this whole time, but uh, baby came out all right. Yeah, and they both take time separately to look over the baby and make sure it has all fingers and toes and comment on how little she is. Birik makes a comment to himself that the baby is going to have chivalry's brow. And I think that's really sad and cute. But <laughs> first of all, that he would know and like notice right away. But second Far of all, features. Yeah. Second of all, a little sad that he isn't saying he'll have Fitz's or she'll have Fitz's brow. Yeah. It's chivalry's brow. I mean, Fitz was supposed to live up to his father, you know, chivalry. So. Right. I don't know. So I thought that was really cute that they both take their separate turns. But I also want to mention this because I think it lends credence to the idea that maybe the center is around the baby and not Molly. Because in this, when Beric is commenting on how the baby will have chivalry's brow, we are focusing on the baby and Beric while Molly is getting dressed and changed off away, off camera, so to speak. And we stopped talking about Molly for a little bit. So I just thought that was really interesting that we're staying with the baby. And I know that maybe part of that is because Fitz is like, oh my gosh, I'm a dad. I got to see my baby. But I think it's more so because that's who's tethering him there. I also think it's really interesting that Fitz gets to be there for the birth. It makes me wonder if Chivalry was there for his birth. Although oh, yeah. I don't know. he couldn't have been because then he would have known Fitz right. was around. Yeah. But then maybe there's the argument that he kept Fitz a secret because he wanted to protect him from the life of a bastard. I don't know. Could be true. Yeah. Not sure. Or not. <laughs> and so Fitz is sitting there with this whole revelation just coursing through him. And he's thinking about, oh, why didn't Birik tell me about this? And then it instantly goes away. He's like, oh, maybe he did when he went to the cabin and I was gone. Because obviously he had been there when Fitz was supposed to be okay and abandoned right. by Jade and Birik. And then... Had reverted into had reverted wolf self. At least a few weeks. And so he has this thought then. I would return. Like a, swing, a door swinging open, I suddenly understood that I could do that. Nothing truly stood between Molly and me. Which is, it's, it's interesting to me that this is what puts it in perspective because 
he's so blinded still by his love for Molly and everything that it really clouds his critical thinking. Right. He forgets the encounter with hands. He forgets mm-hmm. everything that Chade has told him, like, no, you are dead. Forgets everything that Beer told him, like, if you are dead and come back, they're going to say you have wit magic and kill you again. Like, right. And on top of that, he's saying, well, I'll just explain it to her and it'll be okay because we have a baby now. Yeah. That changes everything. And I'd tell her everything this time. Which we all know would not happen even if he did make it to Molly. But it's so like fits (laughs) to ignore the facts kind of. It just, he swings to extremes of yeah. like everything is over into oh everything is going to be perfect like she'll forgive me um we'll never have any secrets between us again it'll be a perfect life yeah blah 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 because like we, we mentioned before in the first book he is a romantic at heart and he right. wants that to happen but he he, <laughs> he needs the dose of reality once in a while but not as much as he gives himself sometimes right there's a fine line and Fitz cannot see it <laughs> But I do feel bad for him because I want this to work out. I do. But I also think he's overlooking the fact that he hasn't been around. And just because there's a baby now, now he knows there's a baby, won't change anything. There's nothing just because a child is there doesn't mean that the love is guaranteed. Right. It's, I guess, young and naive of him to think that that could fix everything. His first love, he's 19 years old. And I mean, as someone who loves Molly and Fitz pairing, I wish that they could have made this work. But also, I think they needed the time apart to grow up away from each other. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And get out of the toxic traits that they are both stuck in to maybe be better for each other. And so Fitz is all ready to go to Molly and his child. He gets up, grabs his coins, thinking about the journey ahead and how he asked he might have to work to get there and work for his fare along the river, but he'll eventually find them and it'll be all good. He was going home, home to Molly and our daughter. Come to me. I halted. It was not very skilling to me. I knew that. This came from within me, the mark left by that sudden and powerful skilling. And he feels that he continues walking down the road towards Molly. And he's thinking of the future here. He kept hearing with each footfall, with with each beat of his heart, come to me. And he's just trying to plead with that in his mind, like saying, I can't, I have to go to them. He tries only thinking of Molly or, or his daughter. What would be the daughter's name? Come to me. We would have to get married. He's thinking about all the future things that might happen. That he would have to change his name or whatever, but it wouldn't matter because he would be with them. But all of this, while those words are reverberating and echoing throughout his mind. And he ends with, I'd find something, I'd find a way, I'd be a good husband, a good father. They would want for nothing. Come to me. And his steps are gradually slowing. And he stops... At the top of the hill, looking down into the town below. And he can't, physically cannot go any further. 
the world is swinging around him and making him dizzy when he tries. And he's just on his knees now looking at the town, knowing with all his heart that's where he wants to go. That is the direction he wants to be, but he is not strong enough to withstand the skill command. He does not have the will for it. Yeah, no one really does. Right. I still do not understand it, so I cannot explain it. And he says he cannot do otherwise than the come to me command. I could not tell my heart to stop beating. I could not cease breathing and die. And I could not ignore that summoning. I stood alone in the night, trapped and suffocating in another man's will for me. A cool-headed portion of myself said, There, well, you see, that is how it is for them. For Will and the rest of the coterie, skill imprinted by Galen to be loyal to Regal. It did not make them forget they had had another king. It did not make them believe what they did was right. They simply had no choice about it anymore. And to take it back a generation, he talks about how Galen was forced to be loyal to his father, Chivalry. And how chivalry had expressed regret for that action and would reverse it if he knew how. And Fitz tries to get to his feet. And he fails. He's weak. He, can, he literally cannot move at this point. And he just has to sit and think. It didn't matter. None of it mattered, save that there was Molly and his daughter in the future. He did nothing else mattered to him at this point. Right. He just wanted to get to them, but he can't move forward because of the command. And so he fixes that in his mind. He shifts that perspective and he, he begs Beric into the night. I hope you take good care of them. And once he shifts those priorities that I can go to them after Verity, can he get up and head home? I want to talk for a second about how Fitz describes this skill command. Yeah. How he says that he is fully aware that he does not want to go the other direction, but he physically cannot stop. And therefore wondering, do the Coterie members know that what they're doing is wrong? And I wonder if the answer is more of a no. I mean, of course they can tell right from wrong whether or not they can act on it. But I wonder if after years of being told over and over again in your head, Regal is always right or always be loyal to Regal, whatever the command is, however it works, if then you start to just think that way. I think that's 100% it because we see it in action here with Fitz. Top priority in his mind has always been Molly. Now he has a daughter. Right. He was about to abandon Verity, his king, who he was driven to get to even before this skill command, really. Right. And he was going to give all that up to go to Molly. And then he has to rearrange in his mind that he will go to Verity first. So for the Coterie, they probably have deluded themselves or tricked themselves into thinking that Regal is always right just to stop from being, you know, physically weak or unable to do other things that were disloyal to Regal by explaining, oh, this will increase my loyalty to Regal. And then 
having that mindset for years on end, like you said, right, probably shifts their perspective. Well, especially because it's something so big and so persistent. There is no end to be loyal to Regal. Right. That's like such a big character defining thing. Yeah. And so I wonder, too, about Galen, if the whole time he's being he's shouting praises from the rooftops, if he is in his mind thinking, I hate chivalry, he's horrible, he's so beneath me and cannot vocalize that at all. You know what I mean? Like, what is that like? Did he eventually like chivalry? I don't know if he was even able to think that, you know, we don't know how deep that ran or if it was like, like me or obey me or be loyal to me or something, you know? Right. It's such a strange thing to know, but I feel like it is a really good insights and maybe the most clear rule of magic that we get in the series. Right. Let me know if I'm wrong, please. At Fitz (laughs) is Fitzappy at Gmail. But I don't know. It just is such a weird, I don't know, a weird concept that somebody could tell you something. Which means then that the Red Ship Raiders, when Verity is protecting the coast, know that it's not cloudy and know that they have not passed where they need to. They can see it. I think that's different. That's oh, not think that's, that's not a command. That's uh, what Will did to Fitz in the manor. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, more so just like misleading them and telling their mind that they're thinking something differently. So I don't think that's a command. I think that's more so like subtle. Yeah. Okay. Because he had to do it on a more massive scale and find other ship things. And I feel like the command takes a lot of will and power to do. Right. Because Verity expended a lot of his energy doing that. True. Yeah. That's a good point. And he is a lot stronger than he was, you know, a year and, <laughs> right. and a half ago. Right. So I think it was it was more like, hey, it doesn't look rainy outside today. Or, right. <laughs> hey, this island, you've already passed, so you have to take a right instead of the left, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. Interesting. Okay. It's, yeah. There's a lot of nuance to the skill, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Who would have guessed? <laughs> <laughs> Fitz doesn't know how he gets back to camp, but he wakes up in his... Uh, his place that he was resting before. Kreese gets him up and he can't really stop dwelling on Molly and his new daughter. Thinks of like, well, what would she name our daughter? A flower name, probably lilac or rose, marigold. What would I have named her? It didn't matter. Turns out to be Nettle, of course. Yes. But <laughs> after that thought, He just stops thinking. He tries to put it out of his mind and do nothing except herd sheep. And he does it exceptionally well because he's single-minded about his task. He's pretty much working himself into, you know, a stupor at night. So he falls asleep and does not dream at all. He says, somewhere inside me, a madman raged in his cell. But I choose not to know of that. Yep. He just locks it away. Yeah. And it's kind of sad because I can't imagine feeling that frustration and then just ignoring it. Just, well, I'm going to choose not to, <laughs> not to feel that feeling. Um, I'm a pretty emotional person. So basically, if I have a feeling, I'm going to feel it pretty fully. And so seeing the struggle of 
I literally cannot go against this. It doesn't matter how angry I get. So I might as well just be a sheepdog. Do my tasks is really, really sad. It's sad, but it also probably saves Burek and Molly and the and Nettle because by working himself into not dreaming, he's not reaching out with the skill and right. possibly not attracting the attention of the coterie. That's true. Because later on, he does specifically call out like, I am... I'm struggling not to reach out to them just to see them, but I know it could draw attention. So I feel like the first few days after this, especially after he skill walked or whatever, that right. could have been noticed and they could have been on the lookout for any sort of skill disruption or, you know, feeling from fits. That's true. Yeah. And by not doing that, it probably helped. At least that's what I'm interpreting it as. Right. Because. Otherwise, yes, it's very just solely sad that he's locking away a part of his feelings. But it is helpful to him in some way. It I is, mean, yeah. it does help him eventually move forward, mm-hmm. which is good. Yeah, definitely. So he continues along with that. They continue along with their journey. And he describes here that the puppeteers have like three plays that they're doing and they practice them all the time. And the master puppeteer is a very hard not not a very hard he's more strict than others but not as strict as he's ever seen master because he wants to get all the intonations the hand movements everything perfect right out of all of his players and he'll flail around with his strap if something is wrong right he does punish heartily so not great but it could be worse i guess question mark <laughs> yeah yeah apparently fits his scene a lot worse so but because of all the beatings that the minstrel, or not minstrel, the puppet master gives his subordinates, it ruins the mood further for Fitz and he tries to stay away from it. Yeah, more often than not, just sitting out in the pastures looking over the sheep. Right. And he spends his times with a handsome minstrel named Starling. Yes. She goes out there and joins him and talks to herself and also practices on her harp and practices her songs and stuff. And Fitz is like, I don't know if it was because we're both from Buck and she had like, you know, a Buck audience for her only Buck songs that she knew or, Mm -hmm. you know, a, a loneliness for that duchy. Or if it's because like she truly wanted to get away from the puppets, <laughs> puppeteers as well. Right. But she was often by him as well. Right. And I think, honestly, Starling was probably actually trying to talk to Fitz. And Fitz just oh, yeah. never yeah. feels the need to respond to people out loud. So Fitz is like, ah, uh, yes, like a person would to their favorite dog talk. And Starling's over here like, this guy is weird. <laughs> Well, he specifically does say that sometimes she talked to me. (laughs) It was not a conversation. (laughs) She spoke to herself in the night and I just happened to be within earshot. So he knew it was directed at him. He just did not answer at all because he doesn't want to talk to anybody. (laughs) And then the one time he does talk to her, he's like, it was the deepest conversation I'd had in a while. And it was one sentence. (laughs) It's like she's like talking about how she knows he had. Knew he had to be more than a sheep herder because sheep don't give scars or broken noses. And he grumpily says, they do if you follow them off a cliff and then (laughs) huffs away. And it's like, come on, Fitz, be nice. Make friends. 
she does mention her history, and we should talk about her character a little bit here because this is our first introduction to Starling. Yes. And she does stick around for a long time in this series. She was a minstrel to a very, very minor nobleman um, or noble house, I should say. And was there at a small keep. Uh, Fitz did not know or have has never heard of either the noble house or the keep. And she got chased out and swept and the keep got swept through by the red ship raiders. Starling survived and she didn't have any master to sing for or a place to put her head. So she set out on her own resolved to head so far inland that she'd never again see a ship of any color. And we know that she was a, uh, Severely victimized by the Red Ship Raiders. Right. And that's in particular why she goes away from the coast and has um, such vehemence for the Raiders and ships of any kind. And she is there to try to find a big event to sing about so she'll be remembered forever and immortal. Because... She doesn't want to be the minstrel just for knowing local history and stuff. She wants to be a witness and create a new saga, a new song that will be sung forever. And this confuses Fitz because she is going away from the war. And Fitz thinks if there's anything worth telling of this tale, wouldn't it be happening at the war front? And Starling assures me that she was going to witness something that left its witnesses alive. Besides, if you've seen one battle, you've seen them all. She saw nothing especially musical about blood. To that, I nodded. Mm-hmm. And so the journey continues kind of like that. With yeah. Fitz being apart from everything. And I'm sure Starling once in a while coming out and talking to herself <laughs> at him. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and... Uh, There's a couple things that happen that aren't very consequential during this trip. Uh, Some folk are passing by. They maybe had uh, maybe bandits follow them for like a day and then they eventually veer off. Things like randomly that happen like that. There are some messengers that come by in pharaoh colors and Fitz thinks he might have felt some tickling against his skill walls, which freaks him out. He tries to tell himself it's just because of the colors and it's not real but there could have been a skilled person in their midst that was looking for anyone with skill on his way they also get to do uh get to witness in front of us the audience a welcoming ceremony of some type between some of the nomads and madge the leader of the caravan and i thought it was really interesting because it is an older woman and her son. Uh, Two grown women and the boy. Two grown women and the boy who is being raised to take over. Um, And it does mention that the boy has tattoos on his face Mm -hmm. that are cat marks. Yeah, stripes like a cat's described as. (laughs) And I thought that was really interesting because I don't remember him from the first time through or, you know, any read throughs. I'm sure I won't remember him soon, but I'm going to try just like I remember the the people at Buck that were strange and dyed their teeth. 
Oh yeah, and the, had tar uh, in their hair. The forest men, yeah, whatever, the wild men, whatever they were called. Yeah, so I thought that was interesting that there are these like little tiny one-offs about these interesting diverse cultures, and then we're never gonna hear about it again. We don't yeah. get to learn any more about it. It's not important uh, to Fitz, so we don't learn. <laughs> but it is said that as far as Fitz could see, no money was exchanged. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like an elaborate tea party. It yeah. seems like I, I do want to um, describe it as it yeah. is in the book and then talk about it real quick because of some similarities I noticed. So it says Madge set up a table and cloth and brewed a special tea, which she served to them with candied fruit and barley sugar cakes. No coin exchanged hands that I saw, only this ceremonial hospitality. I suspected from their manner that Madge was long known to them and that her son was being groomed to continue this passage arrangement. I noted, I highlighted that section, and I noted in there that it is very similar to the Rainwild Traders and the Bingtown Traders. Yeah. How they have a tea party just to continue their arrangement and discuss probably mm-hmm. whatever is going on. So it's a little insight to, you know, similar customs right. across different cultures, which was interesting to me. Yeah. Well, what's more interesting is the nomads who probably started this tradition, they are described as being light-haired and they would be light-skinned if it weren't for the sun that had darkened them. Yeah, they're all blonde. Which means they're probably originally from the mountains because we know that people from the mountains are fair-skinned and fair-haired. Yeah, I... Mostly. I mean, there's no... (laughs) If we're talking, like, ancient, like, these people probably came from the mountains or whatever, yeah, like, I don't... I mean, these people were probably nomads for a long, well, long time. Well, the people of the mountain are nomads. So, like... Yeah, but there's different nomads. You know, there, there's people in the mountains, and then there's people in, like, the desert. It's different climates. Right. So I wouldn't expect them to be the same peoples. I thought they were all the same people. Really? Yeah. I thought that the nomads are the ones who go to the village. Mm, see, I didn't think so. I don't know. That's how I've always that's how I've always just envisioned them is they are the mountain kingdom people. They just roam. Maybe not. Maybe they're with with so much like vitriol that's spoken towards the mountain folk from the inner duchies and all of the history that we get of like this duchy was always nomadic people and they don't look down on them. I I figured that they were going to be completely different. You know, completely separated out. Um, and why, if they were the same people, why would they have grazing herds there and not trade and bring them back up to the mountains and things like that? I suppose that's a good point. I don't know. I mean, I can't, I can't assume that every single mountain nomad has zero flocks of anything. And like, right. so that's, I don't know. I just feel like they're somehow related, especially with their coloring being so different from those of the people of Buck who seem to be darker skinned and have the darker curly hair. Well, that's also with the uh, the blood mixing in from the out islands right. as well. So I feel like that doesn't get to the inner duchies that much. So I feel like they're more mingled with the mountain folk and they just have those different colorings, you know? Right. That's fair. I mean, I don't know. Genetics are weird. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I was going to say originally... That it pro- if we think about them stemming from the Mountain Kingdom people, yeah, that the Mountain Kingdom people most likely 
our ancestors from Kelsingra. And Kelsingra is awfully close to the elderling or to the Bingtown people. I mean, awfully close. It's all relative. <laughs> They're in the same area. <laughs> you can reach one from the other. So maybe it's an old elderling thing because the could be yeah. Rainwild traders. They also are near an old elderling city. So presumably. Though you have to remember, though, those people specifically came from Jamalia, though. They were all from originally from Jamalia. They were like the prisoners or something like that, or like debtors. And they all went to Bingtown and some people moved up the river and stayed, but the rest of them moved down and formed Bingtown because people kept dying and things kept happening. So I don't think those were originally people who lived there. So it was something that they picked up independently is my thought. Fair enough. I don't know. Could be something that they learned from those, you know, those cities or something, but I don't know if they would have picked up on, I don't know, stuff from like hieroglyphics or murals right. or, you know. Well, they can see writing. the elderling people living through the walls. It's, yeah, some people can. Yeah, that's true. So, But I guess also maybe it just speaks to the ancient way of how things were done yeah. overall. Yeah. Just being courteous to people, you know, you don't have to pay pay everybody. You just have an agreement and you are hospitable. Yeah. Because you are the guest in their land. Right. I don't know. I just wanted to point out the similarities between those two because I thought it was interesting as well. Definitely is. And so Fitz is continuing on this journey as well, just through these little things and now he's kind of stopped his mindless sheep herding probably after the first you know a little bit of this journey again time is a little wobbly in this section <laughs> we don't know how long long passes here right but he finds himself realizing that he's looking forward to the future again right instead of just being like you know I'll just kill regal and that's it I don't care He has something to do after this next step of getting to Verity. Right. It's the day, the day he realized he was looking ahead again and was planning for a life after I'd found Verity and somehow taken him safely back to Buck. And this realization comes about because he is thinking about what Molly is going to teach their daughter and what he could teach the daughter. And he starts off negative per usual by thinking just poisons and then says, no, I'll teach her her letters and math. And that will be what I teach her. And everything Burek has ever taught me about animals, I will let, I will yeah. teach her that. And I think it's really cute <laughs> for lack of better words to see the evolution from I'm nothing, I'm no good to, well, actually I do have some redeeming qualities and I could be a good dad. I could teach her things that are important other than how to kill somebody. Yeah. He says, I'd be back with them soon before she learned to say pa. I'd be there to see her first steps. That resolve changed something in me. I'd never looked forward to something so much. This was not an assassination that would end in someone's death. No, I looked forward to a life and imagined teaching her things, imagined her growing up bright and pretty and loving her father, knowing nothing ever of any other life he'd ever led. She wouldn't remember me with a smooth face and a straight nose. 
She'd only know me as I was now. That was oddly important to me. So I would go to Verity because I had to, because he was my king and I loved him, and because he needed me. But finding him no longer marked the end of my journey, but the beginning. Once I had found Verity, I could turn about and come home to them. For a time, I forgot Regal. I do want to mention the immediate... I'm keeping secrets from a loved one. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that too. My daughter will never know of my history. I'm not ever going to tell her. And this is the problem with Fitz. It's so black and white that it's damaging. He's not giving anyone the opportunity to know him fully. He just assumes that they won't like it, which... Because he's shameful to... It's shameful to him, too, about who he is. Right. And... To be fair, you're not really going to tell a four-year-old, hey, I kill people or I used to kill people for a living and here's how. But at the same time, I think it's super unhealthy and still shows that he has a lot of growth left that he thinks, well, it's okay because she didn't know me at all before. So it's not really lying if I turn into the man I'm telling her I am. And it is lying and it's keeping part of your past from your child. And while you probably shouldn't tell them about that specific past while they are a child at some point you should yeah and i don't think fitz would do that if no. he had the opportunity he'd repeat mistakes yep i mean again that that would take a long time and he had time to grow and i'm sure at that point if he was true to his word as we're taking him for he would have told molly everything right so she would have probably talked to him, too. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. But I don't know if they would have made it if he would have turned around. I don't know if he right. would have stuck to his resolve to go back if he would have turned around. Yeah. I mean, this is just hypothetical. If he stuck to everything he right. said. <laughs> <laughs> if everything else turned out okay. Yeah. The, these passages and him thinking about his future with his daughter is incredibly sad to me because we know how it turns out. We know that he has to stay away. We know that he misses all of those things. We know he's not there when she calls Birik Pa for the first time. Right. We know he's not there to teach her uh, letters or numbers or anything like that. And he misses out on all of that. And here we see him so hopeful and so excited for something. Right. And we always talk about how... Robin Hobb and these stories in general are so heartbreaking and Fitz gets put through a lot, but rereading them, you can see even more heartbreak like, right. <laughs> because we know what happens in the future. Yeah. Some things get, you know, eased a little bit and they don't hurt as much because, you know, maybe things work out in the end, like, you know, Fitz and Molly breaking up and having an argument or something or right. he and Birik, you know, Birik thinking he's dead because they do make up in the end, even though it's really sad heartbreaking how that works too yeah <laughs> but some things just really stick out to you and jab you with a needle <laughs> yeah i mean it is really sad to think about what he is going to miss out on i think especially in this rereading what stuck out to me is she'll never know what it was like what her father was like and she'll only love her father and be happy it's just this your dad is going to be there no matter what, because my dad wasn't is what right. it feels like to me. Yeah. It feels like I know how bad it hurts to not have your dad around. I'm not going to make that mistake. And then he turns around and does just that. He stays away from her. 
And I wonder if part of that is because he put himself into the dragon. I wonder if this hope was lost. Maybe. Maybe. Because it hurts too bad to think about. So you put it away. And I wonder if that's partially why he didn't ever come back. Because he didn't have the emotional depth to think about, well, maybe I won't get the girl, but my daughter will have her father in her life. Right. There's not there was no importance anymore because he had given that up. And I think that's equally as sad Yeah. because he clearly wants her to know him. Mm -hmm. Even if it's the idealized version of him, he wants to be there and he doesn't end up doing that. And I think about that a lot. (laughs) So he's thinking about his potential future going back to them and as I mentioned before, really wants to reach out with the skill to look in on them and refuses that temptation just so he doesn't bring any harm on them. And this is, it's a big, it's a huge event in someone's life to learn that you have a kid. Yes, he has a daughter now. He has a reason to look forward to life. But why are things in perspective now instead of other people saying, hey, you're going to maybe kill Molly and, you know, other people don't use your skill like Verity tells right. him all the time. And he does it anyways. I and won- now this is the time where he's like, OK, I can't do it. <laughs> I wonder if it's a little bit of, well, maybe Molly could protect herself. Whereas a baby, right. there's no yeah. deluding yourself into it's safe because a baby will die like the if you put a baby up against Regal, Regal's going to win every time. So, <laughs> so I think there isn't, even though Molly would also lose, it's easier for Fitz maybe to think she'll be okay because she's strong right. and yeah. she is very just willful and she can she can be fine. Whereas a baby, it's kind of harder to be like, well, she'll be fine. <laughs> this is Yeah, this is one of those things that is understandable from right. a text point of view, but is so, frustrating. oh my God, I just want to beat him over the head. Like, now you understand? <laughs> I mean, I'm glad now? he understood now. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> and so eventually they come upon a village, stop to rest in midday, and Madge says, hey, we'll, we'll take the day, we'll get going in the morning. And everyone is happy with that, so they... They kind of water the animals, set up camp, and everyone heads into town except for Fitz. Fitz is uh, looked uh, agreed to look over the animals and just wants to stay out of town anyways. Think about these things. And he was extra uh, offered an extra copper to keep an eye on the horses yeah. from the owners yep. of the horses. Yeah, and he's uh, trying to get as much money as possible as well for the future of his right. daughter. Right. So he's sitting there and he's quite alone, but he says it did not last long because in the late afternoon, the puppeteer's wagon came rattling into camp and only Master Dell and the youngest apprentice were in it. The others had stayed in town to drink and talk and generally enjoy themselves. But Fitz listens in and he can hear the shouting of the master and it it's made clear that the youngest apprentice... Uh, had disgraced herself with forgotten lines and incorrect movements, and her punishment was to stay in the camp with the wagon. To this, he added several sharp cuts with his strap. Both the snap of the leather and the yelps of the girl were clearly audible across camp. I winced at the second one and was on my feet by the third one. 
I had no clear idea of my intention and was actually relieved to see the master go striding off away from the wagon and back into town. The girl was weeping noisily and she went about the task of unhitching the team and uh, pegging out the wagon and everything like that. She was the youngest of the troop, no more than 16, and seemed most often to be under her master's lash. Not that that was unusual. It was not uncommon for a master to have a lash to keep his apprentices devoted to their tasks. Neither Birk nor Chade had ever taken a strap to me, but I'd have my share of cuffs and wraps, and an occasional boot from Birk if I wasn't moving fast enough to suit him. The puppeteer was no worse than many masters that I'd seen, and kinder than some. All of his underlings were well-fed and well-clothed. I suppose what irritated me about him was that one snap of his lash never seemed enough for him. It was always three or five or even more when he was in a temper. And so he's up and moving and going to this uh, this girl. Right. She is in the wagon crying. And good nature Fitz cannot leave that alone <laughs> because he wants to make sure she's okay. And obviously she's in pain. It's funny because he talks about her as though she's a child for a little bit, even though they are at most three? four years yeah, apart, at most four. like <laughs> maybe even two to three. And he's like, oh, this child, the 16 year old. And it's like, OK, Fitz, you're not an adult, <laughs> <laughs> not in comparison to a 16 year old, I don't think. Um, but he does want to make sure she's OK. Yeah, he feels bad. I think it's kind of sad that he's like well it's kind of okay that he that he hits them because he keeps them well fed and clothed and it's like well maybe it's just not okay ever period <laughs> well it's just normalized in the six duchies right and that's that's the point of i think everybody else in the world looking at the six duchies as partially barbaric you know we we hear like oh there's no glass in the windows there there's everything like that but they have their odd customs as well right definitely and they're not as bad as Chelsea, but there's definitely backwards like apprentice kind of relationships right which we learn more about in this talk fitz goes to check on the girl and she opens the door and he sees that one of the lashes must have hit her cheek in some type of like backlash. Yeah. Like whipped up and kind of wrapped around her cheek or something like that. Right. So she is bleeding and it's kind of a lot of blood, but he notes that it's not serious. It just faces bleed a lot. Yep. And so he's not that worried about it, but she seems to be really scared. Her first words are he's ruined my face. And he says, you know, sit still. I'll be right back. Try to stay calm. He's going to help her. And he is getting a rag with cold water to put on her face to hold against it. He lets her know skin as fair as yours doesn't scar all that easily. Even if it leaves a mark, it won't be large. The hugeness of her eyes at my words let me know I'd said exactly the wrong thing. I left the wagon berating myself for getting involved at all. So she's worried she's going to look like he does. Yep. And he's trying to be like, oh, it won't be that bad. It'll be a baby scar. And she's like, it's going to scar. <laughs> <laughs> 
So he is not the best at comforting people, especially women. He's not used to talking to people in the past six <laughs> months, to be fair. True. But he's trying, and I yeah. think it's a thought that counts. I don't think he thought anything of it. And he is, in a way, trying to be comforting. I think... I thought it was a comforting line. <laughs> I think if it was not a 16-year-old girl, yeah, it would fair. be a comforting line. True. But, you know, when you're a teen and your face is everything, you know, and... He makes her a little paste. Yep. He is like scrounging for herbs that he sees along the way. And he notices a flower that is like a shorter version of one that they have back home. And it smells right. So he makes it into a paste. Yep. And uh, goes there and uh, smears it on her face, says, leave it alone. Don't wipe at it. Let the scab form and then do your best to leave that alone because it'll it'll be fine. She says, thank you. He says, welcome, and then uh, turns to leave, and she continues the conversation, says her name is Tassin. And uh, Fitz says, I know, I've heard him roaring it at you, and that launches her into her talking about how she hates her life right now, how right. she does not want to be a puppeteer, how her uh, her life before was going to be nice, and then her mom sold her to be an apprentice to this puppeteer and now she doesn't want to do that and it's a hard life and all of this kind of thing and Fitz is like well you can't run away <laughs> because you have no food no place to sleep your clothing all going to rags that would be worse try to do better and then you won't get hit right and it's so interesting because this feels like a 16 year old Fitz in female form talking to himself because this girl is a little dramatic and I mean, fairly so because she is getting beat, uh, not beaten as badly as she could be, but it's still abuse and it's not great. And she doesn't want to be there. And her choice was not made of her own accord. It was forced upon her by her mother. This is not the life she wants. She was in love. Yeah, she a man wanted to marry her, but. It was a farmer, so he didn't have the money until harvest. And her mom's like, well, no, you're you're broke, so I'm going to sell you to the puppeteer instead. Right. And sell, uh, sold her to the puppeteer for less than what he was going to give yeah. as a bride price. And it just feels a lot like Fitz in my mind. I mean, not exactly. And a little bit better off. But he was an apprentice in one that he doesn't like and does not want to do in the future. He had someone that he loved that was that had gone away <laughs> that he could not follow and he wanted to make it off on his own. And the older, wiser people listening to him say that are saying, if you go out on your own, you're not going to make it. And she doesn't want to hear that just like he wouldn't have wanted to hear that. I like this story and how it lines up with Fitz's in in the way that it reminds us that Fitz's story while what exactly happens to him and everything that is unique, the main story of what you just described is mm -hmm. not unique and happens all over the six touchies. Yeah. Like it is a thing that regularly happens and we're living in Fitz's head. So it's the worst thing in the world. Right. I mean, the worst things in the world do happen to this boy. <laughs> right. But in general, the story of like the apprenticeship that you don't want and being taken from your love to and your adults saying like, hey, 
listen to me because I know what's good for you and right. what's better. Like that happens everywhere. Yeah. And to Fitz, that is literally the worst thing yeah, and <laughs> during the time. He doesn't even see the irony in his own thoughts of, well, she'll never make it on her own. She better just try harder at what she's doing. He doesn't even think like, maybe I should have been that way. To but. be fair, Fitz did try really hard and did buckle down and do stuff. He didn't keep it up without direction, but he was very good at being a student of both Beric and Shade. Fair enough. But still. <laughs> <laughs> and so Fitz explains a little bit more like, oh, they do it a little bit differently on the coast or where I'm from. He says that the parents pay a master to take the child, uh, hoping that the child can make a better life. But here it's what she's describing is like her mother saying like, Hey, I'll sell you here and he'll pay me half of what he usually pays because you're not willing to be a puppeteer kind of thing. Like it's right. Just gave me money instead of, I hope you have a better life. We'll save up for your college. <laughs> yeah. And interestingly, even if you are willing, if you are not cut out for this apprenticeship, you can be sent to the dirges for basically being an indentured slave for eight years. Uh, uh, indentured servant. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I guess it's not a slave because you do earn your freedom at some point. Yes. She she says, then you're not much better than a slave for six years. Six which, years, yeah. Which is, you know, kind of true. Right. But, but it is one of those things that is really rough that even if you like what you're doing, even if you want to do whatever this person has paid for you to do, right. There's a potential that you get sent to do horrible work elsewhere. Looks like it takes a while for that decision to be made though. <laughs> right. Apparently. And so Fitz is sitting here like saying like, Hey, just try harder. <laughs> Right. Like be better, like don't get hit, like you'll have a better future for yourself and earn your way out of this. And then you don't have to listen to him at all. Right. Just study harder and it'll be fine. Just suck it up for a couple of years. And she's like, no, this is the worst. Um, right. You know, she's, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. She says that she could wait for somebody to buy her for marriage, buy the rest of her debt out. It just says, or hope someone buys me from my master. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and Fitz is again like, no, just. Study hard. Yeah. <laughs> You'll be good. Maybe you could perform in the king's court sometime. You'll like get a degree afterwards. I don't know. That's worth yeah. it, right? <laughs> and then she says, it's lonely for me. All the others, they all want to be puppeteers. They get angry at me when I make mistakes. They always call me lazy and won't talk to me when they say I spoiled a performance. There's not one kind one among them. None of them would have cared about my face getting scarred as you did. And there's a little bit of silence. And then she breaks that silence and asks about Fitz. Right. I do also want to mention that maybe the reason they don't like her is because she complains all the time about how she doesn't want to be there and makes it worse for them. Oh, 100% there are reasons why they're complaining but... about her. <laughs> <laughs> just want to, yeah. Okay, Fitz. Um, sometimes it's not just because people hate you. It's because you're not making your situation better, but... This is a this nice is little fits, two chapter study on a side character because we get this perspective from Tass in here from right. Fitz's point of view 
of how she has been wronged all her life and sold away for almost a slave, something she doesn't want to do, and she's very lonely. And the next chapter, Starling explains, like, oh, yeah, she's been sleeping around with, like, everybody in the camp and trying to get money from everybody. And Yeah. <laughs> so we get a nice little, like, Fitz isn't, you know, great at reading people. No. In general. But uh, she does coax him into speaking a little bit right and drawing out this conversation and being a companion for a night so fitz <laughs> fitz says my parents died my sister inherited she didn't care for me and here i am what a bitch she said fiercely <laughs> i took a breath to defend my fictitious sister and then realized i'd only be extending the conversation I tried to think of something I needed to go and do, but sheep and other beasts were right there before us, grazing peacefully. So he's trying to make excuses, trying to find a way out. He finally says, oh, I'm hungry, and she insists on cooking. So she makes a pot of tea as well, and they sit by the fireside sipping it. And Fitz says somehow the silence had changed from awkward to companionable. It had been pleasant to sit and watch someone else prepare the meal. She had chattered at first, asking if I liked this sort of spice, and did I make my tea strong, but not really listening for any answers. Seeming to find some sort of acceptance in my silence, she had gone on to speak more intimately of herself. With a sort of despair, she spoke of days spent learning and practicing a thing she had no desire to learn nor practice. She spoke with a grudging marvel of the dedication of the other puppeteers and their enthusiasm that she could not share. Her voice dwindled off, and she looked up at me with eyes full of misery. She did not need to explain to me the loneliness she felt. Even her complaints were pleasant in an odd way, filling my mind with her trivialities so that I could not focus on my larger problems. Being with her was in some ways like being with the wolf. Tassin was focused on the now, on this meal and this night, with little thought of anything else. From considering this, my thoughts wandered to night eyes, and there is perhaps a too great of distance or anything, but whatever the reason, his mind was not as open to me as it had once been. She asked what he's thinking about, because he probably went very silent and very blank stared. <laughs> and right. Without thinking about it, he responds that sometimes it only makes one more lonely to know that somewhere else... One's friends and family are well. I try not to think of them. I suppose my farmer found another girl, one whose parents would wait for a bride price. As for my mother, I suspect her prospects were better without me. She was not so old that she could not catch another man. She stretched an oddly cat-like gesture, then turned her head to gaze into my face and added, There's no sense in thinking of what's far away and what you haven't got. It will only make you unhappy. Be content with what you have now. Our eyes locked suddenly. There was no mistaking her meaning. For an instant, I was shocked. <laughs> Didn't he describe the last minstrel as being cat-like when she was flirting with him? Possibly. I don't remember the descriptor. I should have looked this up, but I'm pretty sure anytime a girl is, a he's about to realize a girl is flirting with him, they become cat-like. It's so <laughs> strange. And maybe it's Fitz's relationship with cats where he doesn't really understand them that remind him of a cat where he's like, something is weird here. Like a cat. I can't quite read it. <laughs> it could be a habitual tick of 
Robin Hobbs as well. Of that just could be like true. stretching his cat like kind of mm-hmm. thing and true. I don't know. I I don't remember from that. I, scene. It just like made me think of the last minstrel. I cannot even remember her name. That is really sad. Was it Honey? Maybe. <laughs> sure. I think so. Um. Yeah. So. I thought that was funny, but like, hmm, interesting. Harper, Josh, Honey, and I forget the younger sister's name. Don't ask me. Not an important <laughs> character. They're gone. No room in the brain. <laughs> and so there is that intense loneliness that both of the mirror that Fitz is picking up on and echoes his own from her. And... They kiss. I was as entranced as a mouse looking at a snake. She leaned forward and kissed me. And he is describing something here that, like, it it was just plain lust, but it kind of went beyond that. And it was just, like, missing any sort of intimate touch and so lonely that he just kind of, like... I don't know. He says, I kissed her as if I could devour her and somehow be less lonely by doing so. Right. I. It's hard for me to read this because it makes me really frustrated. At this point, there's no reason for Fitz to believe from what we have read that Burek is taking over his role. So for all he knows right. and like what we do know 3 pages ago yeah 3 pages ago molly, molly, his molly. daughter was born yeah. <laughs> he's going to go back to molly and win her over and convince her that's okay he's dead but now there's a pretty girl kissing him who he was just describing as a child a page ago <laughs> and now she's an adult woman and which they're both children it's i'm not saying there's something weird there it's just yeah makes me mad that he can't fight the power of a boner to like be faithful to Molly at all. And she waits so long to get over him and she thinks he's dead. So like, uh, it just, I don't know. It makes me really frustrated that he has zero willpower when it comes to women. It, I don't know. I, maybe I'm being unfair. It just feels like he should have been able to say no here And he should have been able to be like, whoa, I'm super flattered, like in this moment instead of later. I just I'm very disappointed, not mad, (laughs) just disappointed. (laughs) And they start to lay down on, I think, his cloak or something like that. Just going down, like laying down um, on the ground and there's a rock in the way and she She stops stops him because she doesn't want to get her outfit dirty and asks for his cloak. So she lays out the cloak, but because he's had more than two seconds to think, he's like, what happens if I get you pregnant? And she's like, well, then you can marry me and buy my apprentice years from Master Dell. Or not, as she added as she saw my face change. I can get rid of it too, fill silvers for the right herbs. We mustn't think of that now. Why worry about a thing that may never come to pass? Why indeed? I looked at her, wanting her with all the lust of my months alone and untouched. But I I knew also that for that deeper hunger for companionship and understanding, she offered me no more solace than any man might find in his own hand. 
I shook my head slowly, more to myself than to her. She smiled up at me mischievously and reached a hand toward me. No, I said the word quietly. I do want to point out she did say a few silvers for an herb. To specific herbs, yes. A specific herb to stop pregnancy, which I believe is the game that she plays with all the other men in the camp. Yep. She sleeps with them and then says, I'm pregnant. I need silvers for the next town so I can get the herbs. And just remember, we got a whole cooking pot, a mug, tea, yeah. <laughs> and a like magnifying glass, like looking glass thing for four copper. <laughs> right, right. But these herbs are multiple silver silver i guess we don't know if they're really hard to grow or whatever i don't think they're real they're not real she's just i think they are i think they are well i'm the herbs are real but i don't think they're really worth several silvers she just wants money yeah Yeah. and i don't know i mean at least in buckkeep although apparently they don't work the herbs that molly needed (laughs) were just growing freely so (laughs) i don't know and i guess those are more like birth control herb than (laughs) morning after herb it's a different uh different area as well different things plant b if you will (laughs) that was a good one actually plant b thank you And so he says, no, this is not a good idea. And she's like, oh, my God. We're like, ha, 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 laughing. Yeah. Like, Just don't think about babies right now, yeah, weirdo. Like, <laughs> And then it kind of sinks in that he is saying no and that he means that. And he says to himself, what I sense was a hollowness in me that would only be made worse by laying myself down beside a stranger. He's thinking of... <sighs> That, that there was no lofty thoughts in his denying this. Right. No sense of, you know, undying faithfulness to Molly or shame that I had already left one woman with the burden of bearing a child alone. I knew those feelings, but they were not what came to me then. It was that hollowness that just like, I'm alone and this is not going to help me at all. Yeah, it'll just make me feel more lonely. Yep. And so he says, it's not you. I said as I saw her cheeks redden suddenly and the smile fade from her face. It's me. The fault's with me. I tried to make my voice comforting. It was a waste. She stood up suddenly. I know that, stupid, she said scathingly. I only meant to be kind to you, nothing more. She stalked angrily away from the fire, blending with the shadows quickly. I heard the slam of the wagon door. This is big random guy in a girl's dm saying hey hottie send me bobs please (laughs) boob pic please you're so pretty and then the girl saying no thank you and the guy going well you're ugly anyway nobody would like you you're so gross ew (laughs) ew and it's like okay well you did come on to me first so it's like like the same thing that honey did pretty much too yeah this like i can't handle the rejection so i'm just gonna be like i didn't even like you anyway and it's i don't know i feel bad i was just trying to be nice yeah ew nobody (laughs) would like you anyway it was pity (laughs) okay well didn't seem like pity okay (laughs) but i do i do think that it's good that she doesn't keep pushing on that's a redeeming quality she is is mad which is fair your feelings are hurt you're young it's hard to be turned down especially when you're young and you don't have the capacity to know it's not always about you (laughs) so at least she stops when he says no 
Yeah, she's I I do feel for her character because I'm sure she is incredibly lonely and they had mm-hmm. multiple hours together and opened up about their past. At least she opened up about her past and what she was actually feeling and like her hopes for the future a bit. Right. And they seem to have like a connection there and then to be rejected all of a sudden like no, I I can't. Right. And she probably feels like this is her only way out. We know she's running a scam. I just, I wish she would go about it in a different way. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I don't like, know she's her. Still as, manipulative. She's yeah. still yeah. I don't know her as well as I know Fitz, so I can't be too disappointed. But I am disappointed in her, and I hope she grows up to gain more self-respect <laughs> and to understand that like working at something you don't like isn't going to be the death of you. Right. And what I mean by that is not necessarily that her sleeping with people should make her feel disrespected or that isn't self-respect, but it just feels like something she is doing as a tool to get out of something and not something that she's thinking about as what she likes. I guess I don't know. And if that's something she wants to do, maybe when she's an adult, (laughs) she can get into that line of work as a child. I'm going to say, don't do that. Uh, (laughs) That's more of my opinion there, but Sometimes you just got to do a job you don't like, you know, (laughs) that's just life. Build your resume, move on to the next one. They'll pay you more anyways. That's how it works. (laughs) But I do feel really bad for her. And I feel I do want to say that she is somewhat of a character that I feel for because she is 16. Maybe we don't even know for sure. That's just Fitz's guess. But like this 16 year old girl feels this helpless. And I don't know. It's, yeah, uh, I mean that's that's the one of the beauties about Robin Hobbs characters. Like I still I feel sympathy for you know for Regal too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I feel sympathy for the coterie members. Like there's there's a lot of reasons why they're like what they are and they're all human. So it's a great look at Fitz's loneliness and his Hope for the future that we know will be dashed soon. Right. In the next year in book time or so. I don't remember how long it takes, but right. it's rough out there, Fritz. <laughs> it is. Although, okay, I do just want to quick say, potentially this whole thing of like, it's not even shame or guilt about not being loyal to Molly that stops him. It's just like, oh, this won't fix the hollowness. Like, Maybe he doesn't like Molly as much as he thinks he does. (laughs) I hate admitting it. I love Fitz and Molly as a couple. I want them. They are my OTP um, for any of you Tumblr users out there. But I... And for those of you who don't know, I believe that's one true pair. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) Thank you. But I do think that maybe this is a pretty good sign that Molly is just an idealized thing that he has put in his head that yeah she's on the pedestal be better yes yeah. yes 100% and I think he does really love her and she lo- really loves him yeah but definitely. there are delusions on both sides of that relationship and I they agree. appear once in a while yes <laughs> and sometimes it's hard to see <laughs> Well, thank you so much for listening in, following along with us in this reread here. And if you have any comments about what we've been reading so far, any theories for the future, 
Uh, any commiserations with Fitz's misery, <laughs> please let us know. Right. Is Fitz happy at gmail.com? Or you can uh, DM or message us directly or comment on our episode posts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where it is Fitz happy at all three of those. Okay. So now we get to talk about our favorite part. Well, my favorite part, the. The listener comments, the listener yes. submissions, listener comments. I don't know. I just Something. always like seeing everybody else's ideas, but I do want to start off by saying if you saw my post about how I'm going to try to put polls on Facebook and then thought, hey, Emma, where are the polls on Facebook? I cannot figure out how to do it. I'm trying. <laughs> I, I think I figured out a way, but they removed it recently from regular pages and moved it to like a weird area or like to do something specific. It's stupid. I yeah, I, I didn't even know you could do full polls on Facebook. And then Luke said he saw one of his like pages that he follows had done it. And I'm like, oh, well, I, I'll do it there. Yeah, but it was and, a, it was a page and not a business account. Page yeah. Thing. Which is what we started <laughs> oh, God. because we didn't know the difference. So we're it's like, I mess. don't know. It's yeah. Obviously not tech savvy or good at social media. I'm not professionally in the social media range. Clearly, <laughs> we'll I'm figure something sorry. out. It's I'm sorry to all our Facebook fans because I'm really bad at Facebook. I don't love Facebook. I hate the user interface. The behind the scenes stuff is just annoying. Half the times I can't even open up the messages. So I get very frustrated with Facebook and do not put as much time as I should on there. I'm going to try to get better. That's one of my goals by the end of this book. <laughs> we have a lot of Hopefully. stuff that I have cut out of episodes of just like hey where is this on facebook why are you where are you reading this from Luke? yeah <laughs> literally i am worse than an old person because i cannot even figure out facebook yeah, that's ageist come that on that is ageist it's not old people but like but my mom my is grandma, a good example yeah. <laughs> my grandma uses facebook regularly and she has two accounts and is fine like i don't know <laughs> So not necessarily my favorite medium. I am trying to get better. Eventually, <laughs> maybe there will be a poll on there. I don't know. We'll figure it out. Maybe I'll go to the old fashioned, pick the emoji to vote on go. something just yeah. to get it out there. But I do want to apologize. I did say I'd put a poll out and then didn't do that. We'll figure something out and we'll <laughs> run with it. We will. And today we're not talking about any Facebook entries, so. <laughs> <laughs> but we do have an Instagram one. We do. <laughs> <laughs> From uh, Nicholas. Thank you for reaching out. Uh, they say episode 60. They're talking about episode 65. We're talking about Birik's origins and him growing up and joining Chivalry's guard. Right. And Chivalry, you know, not kicking him out after he had three brawls. And Nicholas is saying, have you considered that it's just farcier stubbornness that he kept him around? Chivalry had decided to take a risk on Birk in the first place, made his decision, and can't just change his mind. To which I would say, valid. Yeah. Very valid. Stubborn farcier like, boys. No, I am not wrong. Birk <laughs> is going to be good. <laughs> also, you just know that the older generals are like, we told you. We told you he was bad. <laughs> we told you not to pick him. And he's like, no, he's... 
he's actually going to be the best. So um, you're wrong. And then <laughs> another fight happens and he his eye twitches a little and he's like, he's going to be the best. He is going to be the best. <laughs> but he's right eventually. So I guess stubbornness pays off sometimes. Thank you, Nicholas. <laughs> <laughs> um, we also just as a final thing, got a really funny tweet at us. And it was just at is Fitz happy. No, he's not. Um, <laughs> so thank you, BSD Punk, for that little laugh you gave me. Yeah, because um, no, he is most of the time not. No, not Fitz happy. is not happy. No, and he's most of the time lonely, actually. Yeah. It, the podcast should be Is Fitz Lonely? Yes. Um, and then we can say, <laughs> yeah. yeah, actually, this time too. It's weird. It's like 90% <laughs> of the book. Uh, <laughs> but we always enjoy seeing. All of you guys reach out, even on Facebook, and we look forward every week to see what you guys are going to bring to the table. I have no problem with Facebook. I can see okay. everything. So, well, <laughs> <laughs> it's just me. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, except for Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> uh, yes. 